0: one of the uh, one of the biggest ways that <clears throat> God has been teaching me in this in this phase of life is through being a being a, a parent and so it's not by accident that it's a seemingly inordinate amount of references and sermons made to the idea of parenting and kids i don't I don't do that because I really like to talk about my kids or anything, uh, so if you're sick of hearing about my children, it has nothing to do with somehow me wanting to to brag about kids, but it's interesting it, it's because I have some not a weird need to talk about them, but because I believe that God uses parenting as one of the really primary conduits for us to understand him more right? in in, the, in the scripture there 's really two big metaphors that God uses continuously there 's hundreds of metaphors that God uses to describe himself, but the two big ways that we probably best understand our relationship to God is in the function of, of husband and wife right he calls christ 's bride is the church. And so there's a lot of reflection and parallel between the way that a husband and wife are called to interact as this kind of picture of the way that Jesus loves his church, his people. right? And then the other is parenting, right? God is called our Abba, our Father. And so when we look at <clears throat> the nature of, of parenting relationships and marriage relationships, when you, when you are in either one of those scenarios, it gives you kind of a really clear and deeper understanding. And so every time I I I fall short as a parent or every time I watch my kids somehow be crazy and I I have these frustrations as a parent, you start to get a glimpse into the way that God relates to us, right? I'll get mad at Graham for something or Aaron for something and I'll think, God, this is how God probably feels about me. And you kind of start to to feel a little bit in in a micro way, the way that God probably thinks about us, except for he's perfect and we're not. And so with, with little ones, I, I'm in a season where God is teaching me a lot about himself through the relationship that I have with my kids. And in many ways, um, you know, you get to have this front row seat to how we sometimes frustrate the Lord. Uh, one of the, the biggest ways that God's been teaching me this lately is this idea of discipline. Right? And, and it's when you have to introduce things to your children that appear to be painful but are actually better for them. Right. Has that gone well for anyone who's ever been a, a parent? Whether that's a, a punishment or no, you can't have every food that you want. That's a snack when you want it. The, the various things that you try to instill in your children, what you'll notice real quickly was when they're little, when they're toddlers, right, everything that you do for their benefit and betterment and greatness is a demise and a punishment and a shame to them. Right? And so it's really hard to say, like, I, I know what's best for you. And I will sometimes cause you small pain in order to reduce great pain later or for your life, right? Because I want you to be an upstanding citizen that doesn't somehow fail to launch when they go into adulthood. And so there's things we do for our children. It's in those moments we do the loving thing that helps them, but they can never see it that way. What they see is not getting what they want, and that's painful, right? And so whenever Bird and I parent... Probably a three-fourths of any average day, we are awful human beings to our children. Not because we're actually awful human beings, but because we love them, and we care about them, and we want them to, to grow up and to flourish in a way that they don't even know or understand yet. Amen? If you're a parent, can I get an amen? All right. I think the Lord relates to us in this kind of way way more than we... And so whenever I'm in that kind of tug of war with my children, I, I, I reflect at the end of the day and I think like, man, I am, I am on the other end of that, of that rope when it comes to how I function with, with God, right? God is this infinitely holy being. He's so far above and beyond us. He creates us and he loves us and he desires for us to flourish and yet he watches us as we go astray and kind of do everything we're not supposed to do, right? Why are you spinning around until you're dizzy and fall down? It's silly when we talk about toddlers, but it becomes a serious thing when we start to think about the way that we rebel against God. And oftentimes, God has to do the hard thing. So much of God's work is orchestrating that which his people need but don't want. And so we've continuing our study through this series of the minor prophets, and we're looking at them, and we're in the eighth one today, which is the prophet Zephaniah. And Zephaniah kind of gets into this idea of the things that people need of God but don't want. And we're going to take a look at this and see how God and the character that he exudes through the things that Zephaniah prophesies speak truth and life into us and God's people back in that time in a way that we need but don't necessarily want. So let's take a look at him. The, the book's author is clearly identified as Zephaniah. This is one of those beautiful things. It's always nice when you don't have to guess who the writer of a book is. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. And by the way, who is Zephaniah? He's the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. It's a beautiful intro paragraph. We learn a whole lot about who he is. right? Zep- Zephaniah is actually a royal. Right? Zephaniah is the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of the great kings of Judah. He was the king of Judah around the time that the northern kingdom above them fell to the Assyrians. And he was considered by any standards a good king. Judah had a whole bunch of bad and a whole bunch of good kings. Hezekiah was one of the best. Hezekiah was faithful to the Lord. And brought reforms and, and good things and tried to bring the people back into a right, restored way of being and relating to and worshiping the Lord in a time where the Israelite northern kingdom was just crumbling under the weight of Assyria. Right? And so Hezekiah you know, gave birth to somebody who gave birth to somebody who gave birth to somebody and all of a sudden we get to Zephaniah and maybe we can ask ourselves, why is Zephaniah not king? He easily could have been. It would make sense that Zephaniah at one point would become the king. But for whatever reason, he didn't choose that path or it didn't work out that way. And we can study history and get a better sense for why. I'm not sure it's relevant to the book of Zechariah. But for whatever reason, we find Zechariah as a prophet instead. And he speaks during the reign of another great king, the king Josiah. Josiah had a really tough job. Josiah reigns at an interesting transition time in Israelite history. He was around the the, the back, the the newer end of the 600s, so like 640 to to 609-ish BC. Uh, You'll notice just a couple decades later is when that kingdom also gets conquered by Babylon. And so he is kind of on the final hope and stretch. Josiah is a king that comes around that really loves the Lord and is trying with everything in his power to drag Judah, kicking and screaming, back to God. One of the first things he does as king is he gets into the temple and he starts to boot out all of the false gods out of the temple. You see just collections of trinkets and altars and things that were being worshipped in the temple alongside of the one true God, and he just gets it all out of there and he kind of cleans house. He says, no, we're going to do this the right way. But the problem with Josiah's reign is it was so deeply ingrained into the mind of Israel that idol worship was okay the ways that they've been going against God were so second nature that it was almost impossible to fix no matter how good of a ruler they had. The people had slipped and were slipping away from the Lord. They were sold out to the world and other gods. And despite the efforts of impeccable leadership demanding reform, it just didn't happen. And it's important that we understand this before we read the book of Zephaniah because you know, we, we see here mankind couldn't be brought back into a relationship with God, even with the best of leaders at the helm. Right? A lot of times we, we like to place our hope in the potential of, of leaders to come, whether that's in, in churches, you know, the right pastor, the right elders, the right staff person, or whether that's in politics, the right president, the right congressman, the right council person in our town. You know, whatever, whatever the, the thing is, we like to place our hope in people. We do this naturally. We even do it with celebrities somehow, like We place a lot of weight and hope into the, into the thoughts and minds of celebrities, and we, we do this. We put our, our weight on others, and we think that somehow mankind, if only they were, they were good, could be brought back. We could go back to the, the good old days, the way things were. And one of the things we learn under the reign of Josiah is here's a, here's a godly king with all authority vested in him, and he can't bring Judah back to the worship of God, no matter how hard He tries, and trust me, he tried with all of his intellect, with all of his might, with all of his authority, and even with all of his military strength, right? And ultimately, he'll end up falling despite it all. And so this is the context in which Zephaniah speaks. He's prophesying to a kingdom that has fallen so far away that no king on earth, no matter how good, could have brought them back, and he's prophesying around that 640 to 609 B.C. time. And so the things he's saying are going to come true, many of them, In just a matter of 10, 25 years or so, we're going to see the fall of Judah, and we're going to see the judgments that God pronounces. Zephaniah, while he mentions, though, the destruction of um, Judah, which we know comes under Babylon, Zephaniah never mentions Babylon. He never mentions what empire, by what hand, the people are going to come to an end and a demise and an exile. And part of why he never mentions that is very intentionally that he doesn't want the people of God to to somehow operate or function as if their fate rested on the hands of the Babylonians. He doesn't want anyone to be able to say, well, we were doing great and then Babylon came and ruined us. Where are you, God? He wants to make it very clear that Babylon coming in is the hand of the Lord at work. God didn't fail to protect Judah from Babylon. God is the reason Babylon is here. God is orchestrating this. And he wants them to understand that with ridiculous levels of clarity because he wants them to see, look, God is the one judging. You are, in fact, living in a way that is wrong. You can't claim that you're doing it well and that if only God was strong enough, Babylon would have been held off. He caused it. He is judging you. And so that's the whole kind of point that Zephaniah is trying to make, at least in the opening chapters of this. Right? And the judgment that comes is really harsh and really graphic. And So this book is three chapters long. It's really short. And it splits beautifully within a, within a verse or two in each direction, it splits beautifully into three sections in those three chapters, right? The first chapter is dealing with the judgment that comes upon Judah and the Israelites themselves. The second section then kind of pivots and deals with the judgments of all the nations that are around them, both allies and enemies alike, right? And then finally, in the third chapter, we get to this, this hope that comes as a result of it, Right? But let's look at first a little bit of the stuff that starts the beginning off with harsh judgments. You can stay seated for this one. This is uh, Zephaniah 1 starting in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord." In the fire of his jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. The word of the Lord. Some of these prophet ones are really hard to say that to, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, We would rather not be, praise be to God. We would rather not hear some of these things. So here's this really significant degree of punishment. And if you read Zephaniah as a whole, one of the things you'll find is there's this crazy level of detail in the wrath and the judgment. A lot of passages in Scripture talk about God's anger and his wrath and his judgment of the people, but, but Zephaniah gets really specific in a lot of ways. It's not just that God will destroy Judah. He'll do it in ways that are intentionally awful and agonizing. Right? And God is abundantly clear that there's no level of earthly wealth or security that's going to protect anyone there. It's this harsh pronouncement It says, look, I don't care how much you make, I don't care how comfortable you are, there's nothing that is going to stop you from incurring the wrath that is coming upon you, Judah, for the ways in which you've fallen away from me. And then we move to chapter two, and it reads really a lot like chapter one, just broader. The audience shifts, right? God moves his judgment from Judah to the surrounding nations, and he has some sense in in a way that's comforting to the Israelites, because watching your enemy to get destroyed, no matter how harsh your circumstances are, are always a little bit better, right? It's always good when you see the Lord, you know, dealing it to the people that you don't like. Uh, There's a part of you, a sinful part probably, but a part of you that finds that satisfying. But the purpose of this punishment is not to make the Israelites feel better. It's, It's twofold. Number one, Zephaniah moves to all of the surrounding nations because he wants to show that no one is above God's righteous anger and wrath, right? It's not just Judah that's getting it. It's everyone who doesn't walk with the Lord. But more importantly, Zephaniah is moving away from this Babylonian exile to something far greater. The language that we see in chapter 2 is not just judgment from the the Babylonian empire, but something much bigger and grander and in the future, right? Zephaniah in chapter 2 is alluding to the final judgments, the time when Both Christ comes for the first time, which we have already experienced, and the time that Christ comes again, and what those judgments will look like. And so we're moving from a kind of micro Babylon 600s, 500s BC to a larger picture of history in which Zephaniah is talking about God's final judgment pronounced upon all the nations, including ours, whatever nation we happen to be a part of in this world at any given time. That's part of the account here. The phrase that's often recurring, there's this phrase that that keeps showing up in in the prophet Zephaniah, but also the other prophets that we address, and it's the day of the Lord. And it sounds like a positive day, but in prophecy in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord refers to kind of the day of judgment. The big one, the total one, the final one. The day of the Lord is not a day that anyone who hears that phrase in the Old Testament would have been looking forward to. They're dreading that day right? Even those who have their hope and trust in the Lord are worried about what might happen, about how secure they, they really are. Right? And it's a day where his patience runs out and his wrath comes, and nearly every prophet speaks of it. But Zephaniah is moving it into the realm of the ultimate. Right? And so by the end of chapter two, what we have is kind of this desolate wasteland of all things having been judged. Everything is awful. Everything is. Desolate, Darkness comes everywhere. Every person will not escape the wrath of the Lord. It's this gloomy passage. There's not a lot of hope left at the end of chapter 2. Zephaniah is talking about the final judgment of all nations and where Christ returns in glory and every knee bows. And we know that there will come the day when Christ will return and every single knee will bow on this earth. Some in in worship and adoration, hopefully we're part of that. And some, if not that, then in fear trepidation. But every knee will bow when he comes back. And from what's happening to them in the immediate to to what the whole world's fate will be is what Zephaniah is trying to get at. And so this final judgment is looking even worse in chapter 1. It keeps getting more harsh. But today, I want to look at and read and focus on parts of chapter 3. Because it's the the final chapter, and when we get to it, Zephaniah pivots hard. Those reading the first two get this harsh picture of God's furious anger. He looks like a parent who just lost it. Have you ever a parent ever just lost it? And I'm not saying in a way that the kid deserves, but in like an irrational way that you have to apologize for later, right? Where you're like, I probably like, every, every parent has days that they can look back and go someday when my kid grows up and needs therapy and I wonder why. That's, that, was, that was one of like the 34 days where, that were the, the cause for therapy and I should probably help them pay for it, right? So, so we see at the end of chapter 2, we're kind of left with that. It looks like God is just this irrationally angry, furious, like he's just had it, and he overreacts. But when Zephaniah pivots, we get a much better picture of the Lord's purpose in his wrath. And so let's look at that. We'll start in verse 9 of Zephaniah 3, because that's when things change. For at that time, actually, I'll have you stand for this part. Let's stand together. By the way, if you're new and you wonder why we like to do this, we just like to, when we have our main passage read, we just stand in, in reverence of God's Word. It's an acknowledgment that the stuff I say is, is through careful study throughout the week, but, you know, and hopefully edifying to you, but the stuff that God says is, is truly the divine Word of the Lord. And so we, we kind of have a reverence and a respect for God's Word when we, when we read our main passage. So if you're, ever, if you're new and you're like, why do they stand up? You know, it's not a Catholic thing. It's just we just like to respect God's Word and show some honor and reverence. Zephaniah 3, starting in verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones." And you shall no longer be haughty in the holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Lord will exalt over us with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." Again, the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So God here turns this language on a dime and shows us in the midst of all this harshness what his true heart really is. All of the anger from the first two chapters is brought to a full fruition here. And the key word that helps explain all of it is the the word pure in verse 9, referring to pure speech. The key word here is purity. All the pain that God is causing Judah and ultimately all the nations that come under his wrath and judgment is not meant to be spiteful or hateful or painful. It's meant to be cleansing and purifying and life-giving. And so Zephaniah continues to describe the results of God's anger in chapters 1 and 2. What's going to be on the other end of it? All will call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 9. His people shall have all of their shame removed, verse 11. His people shall be humble in their walk, will have a humility that is natural, verse 12. The people will have no more deceit or injustice, no lies in our midst, verse 13. There's going to be nothing to provoke the fear of God's people. We will have no fear, verse 13 again. There will be rejoicing and singing, verse 14. Evil will be a complete thing of the past, verse 15. God will be in our midst And he will rejoice and sing over us, verse 17. The lame and the outcast, those are the the least of these. They will have finally a place to call home, verse 19. And whatever fortunes and renown have been taken away in anger and judgment, chapters 1 and 2, shall be fully restored, chapter 3, verse 20. And so we see as Zephaniah is prophesying That the other end of judgment is always restoration. God never punishes or destroys just for the sake of punishment or destruction. There's always something on the other end. And the thing on the other end is blessing for those who turn to him. God's Punishment, his anger, his wrath, the most wicked stuff that we see happening from our vantage point that God does in Scripture is never meant to be pure, unadulterated anger, but always meant to be restorative. He punishes us, he afflicts us, he puts us on trial, and through trials, for the sake of our own betterment and growth and restoration. Anytime God causes you affliction, the goal of it is that you come out on the other side better than you went in. That's how God operates. God knows that in the midst of our sin and our wickedness, one of the only ways a lot of times that we grow is through pain and struggle and suffering. Hopefully, if you've heard me preach for a year or so or more, that's not news to you. Sometimes God just works like that. Just like a loving father or mother disciplines their kids so they grow up in maturity and in love and as well-established human beings, right? Just like I sometimes have to do things that Graham thinks I'm terrible for, so the Lord sometimes does things to us that we think he's terrible for. And we can't understand, why am I going through this? Why am I suffering? Why would you pronounce that kind of a judgment? Why can't there be grace Why can't you just love me anyway as I am? God loves you as you are, but he wants more from you. He wants you to be more brought into the fullness of humanity that you were created to be. And so God will put you on trial and through trial so that you might grow in him. And there's nothing he won't do in order to get you to be pure and holy and his. There just isn't. And so the book of Zephaniah is this call to humble submission. It's a call to trust the Lord in all circumstances. And when life afflicts us, instead of asking why God, to ask questions like, where are you in this, Lord? As I'm walking through struggle and pain, and some pain is just the sin of the world. Some things just stink, right? But when we walk through the thick of it, when we walk through the muck, can we say, where are you in this, God? What are you trying to do in me or through me? What are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to shape me? And when we learn to do those things well, we establish a humility, a turning from sin and fleeing from idolatry so that the Lord can start to shape us and use us. It's through asking questions like, where are you in my struggle and pain, Lord, that we start to truly grow as followers of Christ. The more we learn to do that, the more mature we become. Because when we start to ask, God, where are you? And what are you teaching me? And what are you trying to do in this? The Lord will start to answer those questions. And what results is a deeper love for the Lord, a deeper trust in the Lord, a deeper kind of default mode of walking with the Lord instead of against him. And that's what we call growth, sanctification. You ever wonder, why? why is my relationship with God so stagnant? Well, maybe it's because every time pain hits, we shake our fists at him rather than trying to ask and discern and pray and figure out what he's doing. God is up to something in each and every one of our lives, individually and collectively, as a church, as a, as a people, as, as God's people throughout all of human history. God is moving in the midst of his people every single second of every single day. The question is, are we going to ask, what are you up to? Or are we going to shake our fists in anger and pout and walk away from the Lord when pain comes? If you've grown up and been told that the Christian life is life easier lived, I'm really sorry to disappoint you. The Christian life is hard. But God is good and he promises to be with us. And I would have him in my corner any day. No matter what affliction hits Because I know that the Lord is working in life throughout all pain and suffering to grow us into maturity and his likeness. And one day we'll get to stand across from him and he judges us when we breathe our last and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get to that day when there will be no more pain and no more suffering. And that's really the picture that Zephaniah is trying to paint. He goes, look, no matter how bad it gets, chapter 1 and 2, there is a hope that is coming, chapter 3, that will make all of it worthwhile. And So Christian, cling to that hope. Hold on to that. No matter what happens in life, God has you and God has your best at heart. And that is a promise that he makes over and over and over again. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love of us. Lord, thank you that, you, that you're willing to put us through struggle to grow us. Lord, we live in a world where we're increasingly told that the way we love people is by just kind of being in their corner and approving everything they do or say or want. Affirming every decision by being the, the yes man, the encourager. But Lord, sometimes love looks different. Sometimes true love is telling it like it is. Sometimes true love means a perceived harshness. Sometimes true love is discipline. Sometimes true love is pain. Lord, you know that even when we forget. So God, we pray that that you would be shaping our hearts and minds, Lord, as we go through struggles, as we go through pain and suffering, that we would have eyes fixed on you, that we would always be encouraged and reminded to ask, where are you in this, God? And we pray that you might tell us. We pray that you shape us into the people you want us to be. And Lord, we we don't want to pray this prayer, but we ask that you do it even through struggle when necessary. Because in the end, what we want is you and more of you. In whatever way you see fit to get us there, because you know better. We pray that we might have a hope in you and a trust in you that never fades. We love you. We praise you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.